Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Darren King. Happy winter solstice, everyone. That's when we're recording this show. Uh, the longest night of the year, which means tomorrow the days start getting longer again, and that is something to look forward to. Darren, we skipped a week, so it's been a little while since we've had a chance to catch up. It's been a busy holiday season on my side with work winding down and family coming into town. A lot going on. We missed a lot of things that happened in the news, particularly with the UFO topic. And we're going to dig into some of that. But before we do, catch me up on how you've been. I've been very well, my friend. A lot going on for me as well, professionally and individually, personally. And a combination of dealing with that and sort of grokking that and metabolizing that while also being aware of, as you and I were talking about just a minute ago, what's going on in society and what's getting ready to be rolled out in the coming year is uh, it's really amazing to think about it all. It's almost difficult to hold it all in a space you can sort of be aware of at the same time because there's so much. And we always look back at the end of a year and sort of reflect on the previous year and look forward to the new year. But I think at this particular time, it's just a remarkable time in history to look back at what's happened, but still know that there's even more ahead, that the consequential things that might happen in 2024 are even more serious and consequential than what's happened already. And that makes me think about what's coming. And in some ways, it really changes your perspective on holidays and that entire thing makes you think about the nature of meaning models and how holidays were invented to begin with, how Christmas was kind of co-opted from pagan festivals by Christianity. You got that entire history of meaning-making models. And then we're on the cusp of really expanding the aperture in terms of opening ourselves up to much more awareness of these other beings, these other kinds of realities that are imposing upon this reality, really a remarkable time to be alive. Couldn't agree more. This is a great time to do some reflection as we embark on the beginning of a new year. Like you said, so much has happened in 2023 with this topic. I'm thinking back to where I was at the beginning of the year and, and sort of what things have come to light since then. It feels like the momentum is building. I know that like every movement, there are some setbacks and we certainly had some, but this is still happening. It's still moving forward. It's not going away. A lot of folks are talking about it. In fact, more folks are talking about it in the public than were a year ago. It's definitely a hot topic. A lot of that interest has come from the controversy around the NDAA and the passing of that legislation, the uh, changing of the language from the Schumer Rounds Amendment that the community was so excited about. Uh, remember that very, very long uh, piece of legislation included in that bill that was ultimately struck down and, and replaced by something much more simplistic with a lot of, I think, uh, get-out-of-jail-free cards for the Department of Defense and other parties to not necessarily play ball and reveal all that they know. So some of the teeth that were in the Schumer Rounds language have certainly been removed. That got a lot of attention in our community, but not only that, it got attention in the in the Senate itself after the, the conference concluded. Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and Representative Senator Rounds had a kind of back and forth. They clearly had a scripted statement they wanted to share with each other talking about how they were very disappointed that their language was 
uh, railroaded and that they're not giving up, that they're going to continue pushing this uh, in both of their parties as we look toward the new year. So very interesting uh, sort of dialogue there and rhetoric there from some of the leading folks in our constitutional form of government. Uh, to me, it's, I think, almost kind of making folks antsy, like ready to do something, ready to take more, I don't know, uh, rebellious a action. And I don't know if you're hearing any of that behind the scenes, but as you watched all that saga unfold, what were some of your thoughts and, and where do you think that that is going? Well, on the one hand, I wasn't at all surprised that there was a pushback. And as I was saying to you before we went on the air, it definitely gives you kind of a sobering view of American democracy. And I'm sure it's the case in other countries as well, where the mighty dollar tends to rule and you get this kind of corporate interest and whatnot influencing legislative branch and whatnot so that it's always serving their best interest, not necessarily the best interest of the people who elect these various Congress people. So as I said to you before we on the air, you couldn't write this script without it looking a little bit corny and too predictable because these guys who happen to be Congress people in districts that house these contractors are the very people that got it killed, or at least not killed, seriously gutted. And I think that leaves us in an interesting position because now when it comes to the forming of councils or boards to discuss these kinds of matters, the insiders can just put forward some of their own personnel and do a quote unquote internal audit and not really do anything more than what they've done so far. So sort of go through the motions, but not really have the intent of really getting this out there. So many people were greatly disappointed. Dave Rush was clearly frustrated saying this was the greatest legislative failure in American history. I think he used something like that kind of terminology. Old it's statement. strong language. Yeah. And But then you have Chuck Schumer coming out. On the one hand, going through the motions of saying, this is really frustrating. This is disappointing. This is not serving the needs of the American people. But at the same time, I got the sense that even that was part of the scripting, that they kind of expected even that this would be partly what happens. And what this does now is a couple different things. One is you've given the powers that be their opportunity. This is the way you would do it democratically through government. You would propose legislation. You would supposedly have a bipartisan push to make this happen. And then slowly, to use Schumer's language, sunlight emerges as disinfectant over this rotten secret. But that's not what happened. But now that opens up the possibility that, for instance, the White House could say, this is going to take executive branch action. We wanted the legislative branch to take the reins. That didn't work out. And so it's not serving the needs of the American people. So we're going to ram something through because we have the power to do it. But more importantly, because we waited for the democratic machinations to work the way they should, and it didn't work. So now we have that possibility. So that's one thing. It's very clear that Schumer was not signaling defeat. He was saying, basically, we need to up the ante now. We will need to use some other tactics to make this happen. But he clearly wasn't giving up. And of course, last but not least, we have the whistleblowers themselves, the former insiders who are so tired at this point of this secret being kept, so tired of the same old, same old, that even when this seemed to be on the cusp of finally breaking into the public sphere at the last minute, the old tactics still kind of worked. And so they are more emboldened than ever, which led me to make this tweet the other day. I said, quote, in the grand scheme of things, the gatekeepers who had the ear of those who gutted the Schumer Amendment have only further emboldened the insiders who have been ready for the secret to come out. 
In short, a reckoning is coming in 2024, unquote. So that's my big takeaway, is that I know some of this is happening behind the scenes. Things are already kind of ramping up for other ways that this can come forward. So as you and I talked about before we went on the air, it's really not a question of if at this point, it's just a question of when. Yeah, you could tell that Rush himself is fired up. Uh, he's made some pretty bold statements, uh, borderline irritated in some of these interviews that, that he's done recently. Uh, the guy seems like he's on a mission and he's not going to quit. So I, I feel like that's going to cause others, as you said, to step forward uh, in following his lead. He has already even indicated that others, in fact, have have done so, just not publicly, that they have submitted their own uh, complaints to the ICIG. They've given their testimony already to certain people. Uh, so this this information is already in the uh, the hands of certain leaders out there right now who are going through the process of of understanding it and which working its way through these different general counsels of offices and, and the kind of normal administrative bureaucratic process. But look, you can't, uh, as Mike Tyson says, every, everybody has a plan so they get punched in the face, right? So there's going to be that punch in the face that I think happens in 2024 that can't be ignored and things will have to pivot in response to whatever that may be. I'm very curious just from looking at what the executive might do. You, know, you alluded to that. They certainly have the ability to impanel their own uh, group of experts to study this in their own way and, and get, get information through executive order. But in an election year, 2024 is shaping up to be an absolutely bonkers election year, maybe one of the most challenging elections in the history of our country. And, you know, you have to wonder how much will will Biden rock the boat there with this particular topic? How often will the topic come up in just general political conversation? Or is this something that they don't want to touch for fear of alienating, alienating certain aspects of their base? And that, for me, says that if we do hear rhetoric from the executive, if we do see action taken by the executive, that they really don't have any other choice. They'd rather get out in front of this than, than be behind the eight ball when this stuff, event, when the dominoes eventually fall. So that's sort of what I'm looking to see, uh, you know, with curious, you know, sight, what will happen there? Will we hear something from Biden? Will we see action from Biden? And, and Schumer, as you pointed out, already alluded to the fact that they're going to continue kind of crafting and creating other legislative proposals to try to push this topic forward outside of the NDAA. They said that was the, the hint that I got. So we shall see. I, again, we all shall see, but I, I think it's very clear to me that this uh, train has left the station and stuff is absolutely coming. And we just, uh, you know, in some ways have to get, give it a little bit of time. Well, if nothing else, at least we can be thankful for the fact that in the midst of this happening, we have political harmony across the nation. <laughs> That's right. It's kumbaya out there. Absolutely. Of course, I say that in jest, I kid, I kid, because nothing could be further from the truth in many ways. And so alluding to what you just talked about there with Biden and his decision about what he's going to bring forward about this in an election year, very consequential because on the one hand, you have many people that are either centrist or towards the left who really see this next election as what's in play is the future of American democracy. And if things don't go a certain way, we could have a constitutional breakdown of norms to such a degree that it 
results in something close to near civil war. And so really, because that is so front and center in people's minds in terms of what's in play in 2024, it's a more contested period in history than any time since the civil war, basically. And even as I was saying to you before I went on the air, there are think tanks that basically kind of measure this. And that's what they've said, suggesting something like 30% chance of something like a civil war-like kind of response, depending on how things go. And as you and I talked about, regardless of how it goes, you're going to have half the populace that's enraged by the response. So doesn't look like great things ahead for us in that sense until we kind of find some harmony and are able to transcend the current political strife. So when that's on the table already, the future of American democracy, no small thing, then when it comes to gambling, even with something like the possibility of alien life that not only is here and influencing us and taking people from their homes for hybridization experiments, but may have actually been responsible for the engineering of our species and our civilization, do you really want to bring that in on top of everything else? What a bizarre time to be alive. On the one hand, it can be quite overwhelming, I think, for some people. But I think another way to look at it is that this is such a consequential time. I would again argue that there are no coincidences in some ways. We are here because we wanted to be here at this period of time. And it's going to be an amazing 2024, no matter what ends up happening. Yeah, I agree. It does feel very precarious. There's almost a sense in which the 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 collective subconscious in the United States is anticipating something, uh, I don't want to say catastrophic, but dis- highly disruptive to take place. Uh, we've all been talking about it for quite some time in our own political bubbles and whatnot that, you know, do you think this could happen? And, you know, I think this should happen. And, you know, we want revenge or we want to restore democracy or whatever your flavor of, of this equation happens to be. Uh, you know, there is the, the sense that things aren't right in the United States and the world's leading superpower. And a course correction is on the way. So to some degree, I have to wonder how much are we almost uh, willing this into existence to a certain degree? How much are we, you know, calling forth this particular catastrophe to happen? So I'm a little bit worried about that, particularly as a parent of two young kids. And, you know, you you really, you think when you grow up that life is just going to kind of continue going on in the world that you've inherited. And, you know, these events that happen, if you live long enough, that it change your perspective on that normalcy, you know, really do haunt you to a certain degree. I and mean, I can still remember the day that 9-11 happened and that how that, that changed everything and changed people's way of looking at the world. Uh, we're talking about something, a, a, a much higher, you know, a degree and magnitude than that event taking place. You know, how will we be able to handle that and cope with that? I'm not quite so sure. Um, you've got a lot of folks talking about this now, though. Uh, you know, I've noticed that Grush has been doing kind of his his media circuit, and he's been with Tucker Carlson, uh, which got a lot of attention. Tucker has a pretty big platform on X, and is very outspoken. And uh, it seems like a lot of folks are willing to talk about UFOs at a time when maybe nobody expected that necessarily. It's been a subject that we've always sort of talked about in hushed tones or we've not wanted to talk about it at all but the conversation is taking place out in the open now and it's getting interesting in and of itself like things are being said that are making me pause a little bit you know tucker talking about how he's heard something that's so dark that he doesn't even want to tell his spouse and you you kind of hear people 
putting forth their own pet theories. And those of us who've been in the community go, yeah, I recognize that one. I used to think that, and now I'm, I'm at this, a different place, or maybe I still agree with Tucker and it's all demons or whatever it is. It's just funny to sort of watch this play out in front of us when many of us in the community have been having these conversations for so long. How do you see this conversation taking place, though, and unfolding in the public space? Is it a positive, the way that it's 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 happening, or are we going to is there some sort of negative aspect to this and kind of this stilted meet media uh, soundbite circuit? Well, a few things to say there. First of all, it's definitely unfortunate, but completely predictable that you would have these talking mouths that are people in society who are social influencers and whatnot, either on the right or the left or something in between, who are known as the people who are vocal about things they believe. And those people tend to get a lot of attention, usually just because they're loud, not necessarily because they're right or thoughtful. And some people want simple answers and want to hear from their echo chamber. And they sort of anoint a spokesperson who will basically say back to them what they want to hear and that they already believe. And so on the right, you have kind of already this, the far right, this perspective around much of what the left is doing is kind of a demonic enterprise. And so it's quite convenient for them to also slip into this entire alien thing is actually demonic as well. Because again, it comes back to things we talked about before, pre-existing worldviews. People don't generally hear new information and go, hold up. I need to like go back and do some deep thinking. I'm going to stop my social media campaign for, for at least three years. I can go back and really study this in depth. Then I'll come back and tell you what I think. That's not what happens. What happens is they have a pre-existing worldview. They just figure out where they're going to slot that new thing into. But it basically has to do with the amount of room we leave open for change of perspective is very narrow. And so when people hear about things like abductions, hybridization programs, and the taking of sperm and ova, and on the one hand, superficially, to some degree, it looks like humans treated a bit like animals or treated like livestock, then that can play into demonic interpretations. And it's very easy, especially when you look at the surface level, to say that stuff does look dark. When we're used to being the apex species in our own minds, it's already a massive shock to the system when we learn there are other species who not only are more powerful than us, more capable than us, able to play with space-time in ways we can't even imagine, but may have indeed, again, been responsible for the engineering of our species and the ongoing evolution of our species throughout time. So again, if your model of reality is angels and demons, God and Satan, and an internal war of good and evil, then some of the superficial elements of the UFO phenomenon, especially the abduction phenomenon, easily slot or more easily slot into that must be the dark side. That must be Darth Vader and his minions. So that's kind of what happens. I think it's highly unfortunate. I see even people in our community writing to me and saying, well, what do you think about this thing that Tucker Carlson said? But I just want to remind people that he probably has far less data, certainly than I do, and certainly probably than even most people in the UFO community do. And again, he's going to take that data and try to, as much as he can, even when it's really difficult, to slot it in somewhere within an existing paradigm. I think that's just what we do as people. And that's why, however this goes over the next year, it's going to be a bumpy road because you're going to have people trying to force round pegs into square holes time and time again. Yeah, I think about an analogy here if uh, of, of a life vest or one of those... Uh 
flotation rings that you see, you know, kind of on the ship or, or near the swimming pool. And when you're when you're a child, you, you know, oftentimes you'll start out learning how to swim with one of these assistant assistant devices, you know, to help you f- stay afloat and not drown. Overprotective parents and whatnot, they give this to you, and it helps you feel safe and a, a relative degree of safety until you kind of get your your swim legs going and you figure out how to make it all work. And you say, I don't, you know, I don't need that anymore. We can, I'm going to toss that to the side of the pool. I don't need it anymore. And you're having a great time. You're swimming out in the pool and your friends are joining. Everybody's swimming, having a great time. And then all of a sudden something unexpected happens. And the first thing you're going to grab is that flotation device. Well, what happens when everyone's grabbing their flotation device all at the same time and and just saying like, this is what I have to use to stay alive. This is, I, I don't care. You know, I, there may be absolutely nothing in the water other than just people swimming, but the frantic nature of that, you know, sort of play that's happening or the legs churning and the water churning just makes people panic. And they're going to reach for these safety devices to keep them afloat, not recognizing that they could just literally like get out of the pool. You know, you could just swim to the side and hop on out and there's a whole world out there that, that isn't the, the pool at all that you can safely nat- navigate. So um, I think that's a, a good way to think about it. it. It makes a lot of sense to me, like why people would do this. Uh, it's very convenient. It's very comfortable. We all do it to a certain degree. I'm not saying that I'm not doing it either. You know, I have certain models that I like to lean on and when things get rough, you know, I certainly go, go to those as well. But uh, you could see how things could get pretty chaotic pretty quickly because folks really haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what they inherited. They're just going to grab it and they're going to try to stay alive. And it's not going to do a lot of thoughtful reflection and pausing, taking some space, figuring it out. It's going to, it's going to be, uh, I think pretty, pretty hectic. Indeed. And it's not like we model in our society or in our high schools that that's something you should do, right? Take a time out, take a time for deep reflection. That's not taught at all. Even things like meditation and, and trying to be a witness to your own emotional responses to events is not something that's widely taught. Hopefully one day it will be. But so absolutely, people basically are trained to become productive members of society and that you have a certain range that you're allowed to exist within within that society to be considered a productive member of society. And people basically just rush from the cradle to the grave following those sort of pre-formatted programs. And so there is no preparation whatsoever for that eventuality when suddenly everything you believe about reality suddenly comes into question. Your origins, your belief systems, everything. Of course, Lou Elizondo hinted at this a couple of years ago now, talked about how people really have to reconsider what it means to be human, reconsider how some of their beliefs might be partially reinterpreted models based on some of this raw data that we're still experiencing now. And again, I know I keep saying this, but I still see it happening and people are not catching themselves do it or not catching when other people are doing it. It's not that these pre-existing older models are better or are tried and true and tested. In the same way that Bernardo talked about with me, how the assumptions of physicalism, we who've inherited it, assume that our predecessors have done all the work to make sure it's a really sound model. They haven't. There are political reasons, sociological reasons why it got adopted. And over time, it kind of just got to this ludicrous point where everyone just assumed it was the case because we inherited it. But I think of here of that movie, The Village, where it actually takes place in modern day, but people think they're living in the ancient past. And there's these weird 
creatures walking around, and the creatures are used to keep everybody in line so they don't question things too much. It's sort of like that. You grow up having generations of believing in physicalism, so you just assume it must be the case. You don't think to question it. So here we have this problem where, again, people are forced into being productive members of society. We don't question the status quo. As Bernardo frequently runs into when people say, well, we know consciousness is produced by the brain. We don't know that. That's an assumption under physicalism. But these assumptions are so baked in at this point that people don't know how to talk about their life, which is the cake, without recognizing that baked into the cake is these assumptions. So that puts us in a really awkward position where we are potentially suddenly confronted with information that undoes some of those pre-existing models, or at least it questions some of them. But again, rather than really taking the time to say, okay, everybody stop, just chill for a second. Let's really take some time to really take stock of what's on the table. That's not what happens. People go, wait a second, millennia ago, they had similar experiences and this is what they determined was the case. It's now in the Bible or it's in the Quran or whatever. It's the jinn, it's demons. Pick your name and your terminology based on the tradition. And somehow people think that that's more trustworthy than your own uncle John's experience that he had on a farm in 1975 and his own impression of what that was. Because again, we're talking about a phenomenological experience that involves some sort of strangeness and then an interpretation of what that could possibly mean. One is not necessarily better than the other. Just because it's older, it's certainly not better. So while we have this psychological need for closure, again, something Bernardo talked about, and we like to feel of old things, makes us feel comfortable. It's kind of like a tradition we've grown up with. You don't want to question it because it's a comfortable part of your identity. But we have to. We have no choice because we are on the cusp of an interaction with these beings and these other kinds of realities that are interspersing within our own that put us in a place that no other generation perhaps in human history has been in. Remarkable to say that, and yet I think it's quite accurate. Mm. Yeah, I think here too of another kind of reaction. This is something that Avi Loeb said recently that he had a chance to talk with David Grush for I think at least an hour. And it's like he's coming around to that this might very well be true. And those of you who've been following along with Avi and the Galileo Project, it sort of started out just looking for evidence of this of this uh, interstellar visitation outside of our solar system, not with any sort of presumption that it's already here. But now Avi's saying that he really wants access to the information. So that that's the other sort of reaction in our society is going to be well, let's just get our top scientists on this. Like, okay, you're telling me this is true. Let's throw all of our scientists on this and we'll figure this out. And you and I have talked about how that approach also has fa failings. It isn't necessarily going to work because it's it's bigger, it's stranger than, than our science is really ready or capable in dealing with. So uh, in some ways, we just don't have the right toolkit to deal with some of the things that are going to be coming out and how to process those and how do we, so that makes me think, how do we get better tools? So what are the ways we can start working on those tools, both in our own individual lives, but collectively, what are good ways to talk about this with your, with your friends and family so that you're sharing to some degree, the right kind of software, you know, thinking with, with them so that they can begin digesting this in a way that is healthy and not counterproductive. Indeed, I think about that ancient show you may remember called MacGyver. And what mm -hmm. MacGyver had to do was actually 
make stuff out of whatever was available because there was no toolkit available to deal with what was on hand. So he'd be in these ridiculous situations where he's trapped by these nefarious folk and no way of getting out, but he'd somehow like twist the mirror and like take something out of a tap and, and manage to create this thing that would create an escape device for him. It's that kind of thing because all of our toolkits don't suffice here, like you said. And on the one hand, that's an incredibly overwhelming and disconcerting place to be in many ways. But it also, I think, opens us up to new possibilities. And again, I just want to remind people, the status quo is not going so well. And again, when you take the UFO phenomenon out of the equation, not only do we have incredible civil strife within the United States, but we have climate change. We have various things going on around the world. We have, again, the dawning of AI, not just in terms of potentially huge numbers of displacement of certain kinds of careers, but even in terms of it becoming an existential threat to humanity. These kinds of things are on the table. So something needs to change. And again, as I've been saying for a while now, sound almost like a broken record at this point, I don't think these things are just circumstantial. I don't think it's a coincidence that the UFO phenomenon is coming to the fore. And again, even the UFO phenomenon, saying it using those terms is a kind of toolbox tool, right? It's like saying, these things that show up as kind of objects that do weird things and apparently are piloted by beings, that's a UFO and that's an ET or an interdimensional, blah, blah, blah. Even that's a kind of tool within a toolkit. It's a, it's a familiar kind of framework we can refer to. Again, as you and I were talking about before one in the air and we've been talking about since the dawn of this show, this is about our meaning models. This is about religion as much as it's about UFOs and aliens. And it's about human history and human destiny and the nature of being itself. Really remarkable things on the table. And again, I don't think it's coincidental that it's happening at a time where our civilization is reaching this boiling point where either we emerge with a newly transpersonal understanding of what it means to be alive and being a sentient being in the cosmos, or in our siloed self, kind of individual sense of self, small self, we collapse under that misapprehension of the way reality actually is. So this is happening to try to crack the egg to some degree, to open our minds to something new. Bernardo talked about it in terms of nature itself, kind of deliberately imposing data that shakes us out of a rut. I don't see it so much as nature as much as I do see it as our more ascendant others that are related to us in some ways because all sentient life is related as fractal impressions of source consciousness in my perspective. They are trying to inject information at this time because they recognize and have really been recognizing since the dawn of the atomic era that we are reaching this point where if we don't somehow expand our perspective, then we are on the precipice of our own self-destruction. All right. So we talked a little bit here about the pressure cooker and that things are happening, things are developing. I think that's very clear that 2024 is shaping up to be a year unlike any other all the various factors that you just mentioned. So maybe we can shift the conversation to talking more specifically, not about like when this is happening, because I think we both agree it is, but what's it going to look like? You know, what is on the table? What are the different sort of aspects of the phenomena that we do need to begin thinking about that maybe we're, we haven't so far spent much attention on or, or, you know, covered very much even on our own show, you know, what are the aspects of this reality that we need to begin considering? 
disclosure happening is one thing, and clearly that's on the table. But one actually gets disclosed is a different matter altogether. And of course, part of that is because the insiders themselves disagree amongst themselves about what this is. I'm aware of various working groups that are trying to understand what this is, and you have quite a bit of dissension within those ranks in terms of what this means and the assumptions people bring to the table about the nature of reality that play into this. You were mentioning to me that you saw a conversation between Avi Loeb and Bernardo Castro. And again, at one point you talked about them kind of talking over each other or missing each other because they're beginning with completely different metaphysical assumptions about reality. And again, because physicalism is the assumptive kind of baked in aspect of, of contemporary culture, often people don't think they have to think about those things and consider their assumptions. They just think these are basic facts of the matter. But what's interesting about this is it's about so much more than just solid craft that are technologically advanced being piloted by alien species. There's so, so much more. You know, I was talking to you before about even in the John Mack Institute, we've been having discussions about different positions on different things. And one of the points I made is there's no clean way to get, get away with this. You can't say, well, we're going to have a clear position on this. We'll leave some of this other stuff to the side because it's kind of controversial. It's all controversial. And one leads to another. And so you can't really talk about one aspect without it bleeding into the other. You can't talk about the modern UFO phenomenon without talking about Skinwalker Ranch because the OSAP program that was run to try to study the UFO phenomenon was the most serious study in American history at the time. And because of their understanding from the data itself that quote unquote paranormal phenomena co-arose with the appearance of UFOs, they chose to study it because that was actually the correct scientific approach. The data told them that this was somehow correlated. They, did, they weren't trying to say how or why. They weren't even trying to say it was causative. They're just saying there's a correlation. So to fully understand, you have to open the aperture and say, take into consideration all of the relevant data. Clearly, co-arising paranormal experience was part of it. I talked to you about how some of my colleagues have wondered if perhaps we could not talk so much about Sasquatch and stick to UFOs and aliens, but that's difficult. I'm sure your friend DJ will be happy to, to hear me saying that, but you, but you can't. This is where it gets really tricky. This aspect of the stuff that's less shiny and technological is front and center with the entire matter too. So but I'll stop there and let you give some feedback there in terms of how Skinwalker Ranch and everything that was involved there alone just, I think, will shock people in terms of what's involved here. I mentioned to you before we went on the air that you've got people like Colm Kelleher, who's this really straight-headed, uh, solid science background kind of guy in his lilting kind of accent, talking scientifically about beings emerging through portals that appear in midair and things like that, while also talking about trying to study the UFO phenomenon and 90 degree turns and those kinds of things. So the people that are honest about what's in the data recognize that paranormality is baked in. You can't separate the two. And that gives us some sort of sense of what's coming. Now, how you go from the average American and the average global citizen being aware that it's very likely that alien life exists elsewhere in the universe because of the size, the sheer size of the universe, that's one thing. But acknowledging that Sasquatch might be an interdimensional being coming through portals that appear in midair, that, that dino beavers might be some sort of mix of some ancient being 
from the distant past or from an alternate earth where a different kind of evolutionary trend was the case. And so different kinds of species evolved over time. And now there's been this kind of blending of these two different frames of reality. This is an entirely different matter. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, I get it. I mean, this is an immune response in many ways to uh, that is that has kept us safe for a long time. And, and actually the, all, all of the things you just talked about, the weird, the woo has fallen into what we would call entertainment, right? It's followed into our fantasy books, our science fiction, our movies. These are fun distractions uh, from the the ho-hum nature of everyday life. And when people start talking about this, even people who have serious backgrounds, as you mentioned, the immediate instinctual reaction to that is, these folks are crazy. You know, this is absolutely nuts. And so I, I get it. And that's where I, I honestly think most people are going to uh, come at this. You, you know, you talked about the easiest on-ramp for us collectively is this idea that the universe is vast and there are other intelligent species out there. Of course there are, it's just so they haven't gotten here. Okay, let's concede the fact that maybe they've got amazing technology and they've gotten here. Okay, I'll give you that. But I can't go further than them visiting maybe them doing the abduction thing. I can't go further than that by saying, oh, like you're telling me poltergeists are real. You're telling me, you know, Sasquatch, interdimensional Sasquatch is real. Like all of these things, like what isn't real, right? I think that's, that's going to be the visceral reaction is like, if you get that, if you have that corner on reality, then anything is possible. Everything is on the table and that, and therefore nothing is meaningful. So I look, I'm saying that because I, part of me is frustrated in the same way. You know, it's, it, we hear a lot of claims that, you know, the fun phenomenon is this, and it does this and that, and it appears this and that, and there are all these different kinds of beings and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for me personally, I, I totally understand that within the framework of the metaphysical conversation that we've had and the way that I look at the phenomena broadly, it makes sense to me that this, these things are possible within that framework, but. But because I'm not an experiencer, I think that's probably most people in the world aren't uh, experiencers, at least in the classic sense that we would talk about it. We're going to have a similar reaction, if not worse, right? I I'm willing to at least give you and concede an open space that that is possible, but most folks aren't even going to give you the, 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 that, that space at all. And so how does how do you get from something that is easy to understand within our sort of scientific framework to these really out there concepts. Like how do you kind of slow walk that? Can you even slow walk that to where you come to a broader perspective that makes room for these strange things? It's a good question. And I know we want to close off today's episode by reflecting on the difference between an experiencer and a non-experiencer kind of perspective on these matters and how that will undoubtedly play a role. And I think that's important for us to get into. And I think you and I have a unique ability to talk about it from both sides of the fence kind of thing. But before we get there, on the one hand, you've got, for instance, Danny Sheehan coming out recently and doing the full circuit tour. He's on almost every podcast you can imagine. And for those who don't know, Danny Sheehan has a brilliant record as an attorney who's fought for the uncovering of important information that the governments wanted to keep secret over periods of time, the Pentagon Papers. He's been involved in things for decades that are really central to American democracy, really. And so it's encouraging that he's taken up this cause and sees it of a similar kind of ilk. Now, what he said recently 
which is interesting because kind of like what Dave Grush said in terms of many of the aspects of the lore ended up being correct. Danny Sheehan came out and actually named the kinds of species that are here. And so for a lot of people that have heard, it's one thing to hear in some obscure book, but to hear Danny Sheehan, this well-known attorney who's been a pillar in American democratic history over the last 60, 70 years, whatever, talking about these things was kind of, I think, a shock to the system. Again, which is interesting in itself because the information's already out there, but somehow it stays in this comfortable, convenient, when I want to be fantastical, I'll think about those things, but it's not going to affect the way that I am when I'm taking the subway to work on Monday morning kind of thing, or how I show up in the boardroom. But when you have Danny Sheehan, who's again, so conventional in some ways as an attorney and part of our existing system, not some obscure person on the sideline saying that, yes, we have short grays, we have tall grays, we have reptilians, Nordics, then people, I think, kind of like do a double take and, and say, wait a second, is my fantastical sideline hobby coming like mainstreamed? And that's really what's going on. So what is it like for you as a non-experiencer hearing someone, not just an ex that's an experiencer talking about things, but here we have an attorney that's part of our legal system talking about information he's come across, credible information. He tends to not fly off the handle, Danny Sheehan. He only talks about things he thinks are credible when he's talking about not just that there's been accords, that there's been visitation, that there's been this overseeing. He also basically implies that he sees it mostly as a positive enterprise. And this is about a major step in human civilization, us joining this larger cosmic community of which we are a part. We've just been unaware of it up until now, which again, I would say to people, compare what he's saying to what Tucker Carlson's saying, right? And try to make sense of those two things. How can they both be the case? But when you hear a guy like Danny Sheehan saying those things as a non-experiencer, what does that do for you in terms of helping ground this in reality? Yeah, I mean, I want what he's having. That's what I. That's what I think about in some respects. I mean, it is difficult because I think the knee-jerk reaction that that I would have to some of the claims that are that are public now is to take a hyper critique of that person, you know, sort of look at them more closely than ever and analyze their history and who the, who are their associates and how do they come to these conclusions and uh, you know, look for anything I can find, anything I got to hang my hat on to, to go, yeah, that person is absolutely bonkers. You know, Danny Sheehan with the, I mean, the guy with the big white hair, like I, you know, you would use something as silly as that. Like you know, he's got white hair and it's huge and you can't, this guy can't be serious. Uh, which, you know, let's not talk about Albert Einstein for a second here. So that that's the instinctual reaction is, I think, to, to, to try to find fault in any way, shape, or form into what they're saying. And, and I get it. Like, that, to me, is a normal reaction. But I also think about how that would be my reaction at any point in history when someone is on the cusp of a revolutionary change and they're introducing that information into the collective mind. You know, you've got your Galileo, you've got your other folks that have had these discoveries, that have had these experiences of of reality in a way, in a, in a shape, in a fashion that that no one outside of their experience has ever seen, and 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 ever thought about, and they're and they're dramatically changed. I mean, these are figures you can find them throughout history who are clearly on fire because of the, what they have experienced, and they're almost. It's like they've lit themselves on fire and they're running into the town saying, I, you know, I just saw this out here and you have to take me seriously. And 
really the first wave of people that received someone like this, what they want to do is either kill that person or put the fire out and pretend it never happened or lock them up and not have to deal with them ever again. But the subsequent waves of folks that deal with whatever that was or also have a similar experience that that individual has, the point here is reality is that I cannot be ignored. Like we, we, we can try, but ultimately reality is going to permeate what we think our reality happens to be, and it's going to change it. No matter how much fighting we do, it's going to come in and eventually confront us and cause it to change. And then we're in a whole different place in the world that we live in today. You know, of course, the sun is the center of the solar system. You know, like we, we laugh at these ideas that thought, Otherwise, and I think that that's really ultimately where it's going. Even then, Darren, I do struggle with a lot of this stuff because I haven't experienced it directly. You know, I, I take it very seriously when people that I know and trust share these things with me. Uh, and I've had tons of interviews of people that have said things that my initial reaction is almost like an eye roll, you know, inside my head. Like, you can't be serious. But I, I do take it seriously. I hold it lightly as well. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm waiting and wanting for more confirmation. You know, I, I have the kind of personality and, and heart here that, that really does want more veridical experience and, and in some ways like has asked for that, but it hasn't happened. And so, uh, you know, I'm kind of just sitting around being like, all right, where, where is this that everyone else is talking about? Because I want to be just as, you know, sort of on board, as passionate, as excited about it as they are. All I can do is kind of be supportive of them and a cheerleader for them and hoping that they're right and, and that we're not crazy. Indeed, I can completely understand that. And later on, we can get into even more specifics about the way these kinds land for us, pre-experience and post-experience kind of thing. But a couple more interesting bits to bring to the fore here in terms of what our society will have to grapple with and metabolize at some point in the future. Again, it would be one thing if someone could say, fine, if you can show me, you can bring me the craft, put it in front of a press conference, you can wheel out the bodies, clearly not human, not terrestrial in any kind of sense that we understand, case closed. That's one thing. But then you have a case like what Jacques Vallée talked about recently, where there was this family traveling down a major road in France and they spot a giant UFO through the sky roof of their, of their car. To their surprise, they're looking around and no one else seems to be noticing it. And it's a busy road. It's not like they're the only ones on the road. One of the girls in the back seat films the giant craft with her smartphone because everyone, all the skeptics say, where's the footage? Why is it always blurry? Everybody has a cell phone, super high quality camera. Why can't we get better footage? So this girl was able to take footage of this giant craft. When they actually looked at the footage on the camera of the phone, what they actually saw was a multi-headed, really kind of small star. So something showed up in the actual footage on the phone, but it wasn't anything like what all three of them saw in the car, while simultaneously everyone around them saw nothing whatsoever. So you've got three different degrees of quote-unquote reality there, right? You've got what they all saw, and you can't say it's somebody's delusion, just like my experience in the hotel, because three of them saw it. And they saw the same thing. They described the same thing. 
but that was not what they were able to capture with a camera. And thirdly, everybody else on that highway didn't see any object whatsoever, a small multi-headed star or a giant UFO. So again, that raises really interesting questions, the most consequential questions about what's going on? What does this all mean? Is this the Truman Show? What, what is happening here? Is this something from outside the set that's coming to do some repair work or something? This is kind of what's on the table. So that's another one that I'll introduce to you and get your feedback on in terms of when we grapple with not just the fact that other realities are here and that our present understanding of reality will be subsumed by a larger one, but that even the way these different kinds of realities are interspersed and, and interact with us are so confounding that they challenge our very way of understanding what is quote unquote real to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think of kind of like the cat with the laser pointer. You know, sometimes it appears as a dot, sometimes it appears as a line, but I just want to chase it. I want to go after that thing and, and catch it, but I can't catch it. Eventually, I'm just going to go back and take a nap, right? Because it's not, it, it, yes, it intersects in, into my reality, but it ultimately isn't changing my reality so much other than as a distraction or an entertainment, or maybe even it vexes me as the cat that I can't get a hold of it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I do struggle with those encounters. I do struggle with the lack of evidence, at least the the traditional kind of evidence that we have. But then I struggle with the the things like the aerial school encounter. We've got all the, these kids that have talked about seeing this experience. They've all drawn the experience, talked to people about it. It's, 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 they clearly saw something. And there are countless examples like this where clearly something extraordinary and, and different was experienced that you just cannot discount. So that, that is many of the reasons why I take this as seriously as I do, because I'm not going to write off, you know, what, what all these folks have said throughout history. It's not like everyone's gotten together in this, uh, you know, grand collusion over decades and de decades and said, we're all going to, you know, imagine this out of whole cloth. I just don't believe that that is, has taken place here. So I'm, I'm left with the pieces. I'm left with these fragments and, and, and much the same way, like folks who have been writing about this for decades, you know, we're, we're, we're collecting the accounts. We're trying to make, make sense of them. We're trying to look for commonalities so that we can very scientifically say, Oh, shaped like this. Oh, it did this to you. Oh, it had th this color. So I'm going to categorize it into these kinds of buckets. It's like I would categorize different kinds of butterflies or, you know, whatever it may be so that I can better understand them. But when you're talking about something that affects us at the level of our conscious awareness and, and that I can literally be seeing a very different butterfly than, than you, and you might be seeing you know, something that's not a butterfly at all. Uh, so how do, how do you make sense of that? How do we have a common reality if we cannot agree as to what is objectively, quote unquote, taking place in front of us, around us? And, and that's where this metaphysical idealism, for me at least, becomes helpful because it, it reminds me that what we're all experiencing is happening in our consciousness. It's not uh, that it's, there's this distinct objective reality that, that exists outside of awareness. It's all taking place in awareness. And because of that, it's like a shared dream. And in, in much the way as a shared dream would be, a lot of the elements are very much the same. But it's it's also kind of these thought associations, meaning associations. And, and it, it affects me in a personal way, my own conscious awareness in a way that is different than how it affects you and it causes me to act in different ways than it causes you. 
these are the layers that I start getting into, but it makes it very difficult to kind of approach this from our sort of traditional scientific paradigm. Absolutely. And later on, I'd also like to get into the spiritual implications of this all and how this plays into religious history and whatnot. But along the lines of what you're saying there in terms of the dreamscapes and whatnot, Another way to think about that too, in terms of how these others seem to be able to, what looks to us like play with space time, which we assume is the base reality. I mean, I don't assume that anymore. I don't think you do either, but that's the conventional understanding. So when space time itself seems to be manipulated by these others, that gets really confusing for people and it makes them not know which way to turn. But if you think about if someone's lying on a bed, having a nap and they're having a dream, you can go to that person and pour water on their hand and that might manifest in the dream as suddenly there's a roaring waterfall in the dreamscape. Now, if these others are able to understand that the nature of reality is a mentational kind of nature ultimately, then they may have developed the skills to be able to interject variables that they know will manifest in certain ways within the dreamscape, which is for us space-time. So that, again, really opens the aperture in terms of what we have to grok here, not just the fact that there's these others and they may have engineered us, but the very layer that we sort of embed ourselves in, in terms of what we perceive as the real world, may just be a construct. And that the construct itself might also be, in fact, I would say it is, in service of the evolution of consciousness. And we can get into that a little bit later in terms of the spiritual focus, because again, not only do you have UFOs and aliens and multi-headed stars appearing as UFOs and Skinwalker Ranch and beings coming out of portals, all that kind of thing, but you also have the spiritual overlay. And not just in terms of loose connections between the UFO phenomenon and ancient religious history in terms of an event like what happened at Fatima in 1917, but you have events where literally beings that look like gray aliens later on talk with people about their pre-incarnational kind of experience and how they made a soul contract to come into this reality. So you've got complete overlay there at that point, right? You've got this blending and collapsing of pre-existing categories. But before we get there, I wanted to bring up something that I mentioned to you that I saw in terms of the, the long-form interview that was published between Gary Nolan and Ross Coulthart, where a couple interesting things happen because this is another one that is a mind scratcher for sure. I've certainly reflected on this in my own life, the degree to which some of these others might also be scripting our lives to some degree. And again, I'm not saying that we aren't participants in that. I think we are. I think our higher selves play a central role in this as well. Again, as if it's not already complex enough. But Gary talks about having memories, vague memories of small beings in his room when he was a kid. Now, a couple of things I would say about that. A couple of things I think were good and a couple of things that were a bit unfortunate. Because on the one hand, people go, aha, you know, a well-known, respected scientist is saying this. Clearly, there must be something to this. But then when Ross Preston said, could it have been a dream? He said, it could have been a dream. The problem with that is that the people who are skeptical or not wanting to tend to believe these things suddenly then feel like they have the leeway to say, yeah, maybe all abductions are just dreams after all. So I think that's unfortunate and kind of sets us back. But what was even more interesting is how Gary seemed to imply that the course of his life may have been, to some degree, manipulated, authored, scripted, steered by some kind of other intelligence. We think about Jack Sarfati and how he's talked about 
having these encounters with what he perceived even back then, decades ago, as a kind of advanced AI that spoke through the phone, kind of sounding kind of robotic. And he feels like his life was wrapped up in this kind of time loop in the invention of something like the Tic Tac as a kind of time travel device. Really, really bizarre stuff as if it wasn't already bizarre enough. But on top of that, you've also got people like Mike Masters talking about how he's recently begun to realize. I've had conversations with him about this because I've noticed the same thing in my own life. You suddenly look back at your entire history and feel like, wait a second, things suddenly look like they're lined up in such a way that things would happen just as they are happening now, which really makes you wonder about the nature of free will, the nature of how much of this is predestined. All these kind of questions come to the fore as well. Then you've also got Gary Nolan in that interview with Ross Coulthard. I want to get your take on this, how you reflect on this as a non-experiencer. Because what he basically talked about was being able to track some differences in the biology of people who do tend to have experiences versus those who don't. And it being tied to the part of the brain that's responsible for intuition, which verges right into psychic kind of awareness, awareness that even seems to span across past, present, future. And he talked about basically what we may be seeing is a speciation event in our midst, where basically that refers to basically when you have a new branch of a certain kind of species beginning. It's as if he used the analogy of you have a hill and one group of people goes over the hill and never interacts with the group on the other side of the hill and they follow different evolutionary trajectories as a result. He's basically saying what he sees is perhaps evidence of a speciation event where a new kind of human with these kind of capacities to be able to behold and interact with this broader reality coming online while simultaneously there's this other subset of humanity who isn't able to have those experiences at this point. So then you think about disclosure, how this gets metabolized into our culture in the future, knowing that you might have part of the population that's able to experience it, another one that has to kind of take it on faith based on what the other half or whatever percentage it is claims that they are experiencing and seeing. So how does that hit you? Yeah. I mean, look, this is going to be a tough one. Um, I can't dunk a basketball. I can see people that can dunk a basketball. Like it's something that I can witness take place. So I get that there are differences within the human family, differences that exist right now. Uh, not everybody has the same set of gifts and clearly not the same like genetic uh, skill set. But it becomes very challenging when you've got a claim that says, well, there's an emergent part of the human family that has the capability to see aspects of reality that 98, 99% of us can't experience in that direct way. Uh, okay, I'll give you that that's possible. Well, how do we go about proving that, right? This is sort of the natural next question is how, how can they, those who have this ability, who can experience these things, how can they demonstrate and prove that that is in fact there and part of reality, just not a part that we have access to? And that's the real challenge there. And clearly I know Dr. Nolan is in many ways trying to be able to, to do that, trying to be able to find ways to you know, a activate this or or deactivate it, quite frankly, to not be disturbed by it. Uh, because it, clearly, if, if most of the world isn't experiencing this, and some of it is, 
you know, you might really rather not experience it so that you can just go about your life like everybody else and not have to worry about things that are, you know, existing around every corner that, that all the rest of us just literally might walk right through. So it's, um, it's challenging, very challenging. Uh, I know that it, it's also challenging because of the, you know, sort of, um, there's a there's a racist you know undertone here. I'll just be direct about it, right? There's kind of this notion of, of some folks uh, you know being more superior or you know or more inferior than others, and then you know this is our human tendency to want to kind of rank things and and, and divide us you know based on these characters and quality traits. Um, so I, I I'm. It's it's a hot potato. I'm nervous in a way to go to go after that because there's just we're not good at dealing with it right now, and and I'm talking about just the things we already all can acknowledge are the things that we can look at and go, yeah, that you know this person's tall or this person's short, this person's faster, this person's stronger. Like, you know, how do we deal with those differences in the human family? And in some cases, we don't deal with them very well at all. Indeed, and then we have on top of that kind of this clash between political correctness and at the same time, like you say, history of some really brutal racism and that kind of thing and prejudice. And so how do we even begin to talk about these things in polite society without people feeling like we're falling into one of those two ruts? Whenever I bring up the possibility of different groups of humans exist that might have different origin sources, which I think is the case actually, based on what I've seen, I get people who immediately shout eugenics and think that I'm kind of following into that camp. I'm not trying to make any kind of claim about the morality of that. I'm not even making any kind of claim about that. I'm just saying this is what the data seems to suggest. Like you said earlier, reality has a kind of way of breaking through regardless of what we'd like to be the case with wishful thinking. So if this is part of what's on the table, we have to deal with it. Now, I would open the aperture again as if I haven't done that enough already and just say that even with this position that Gary Nolan is taking, or at least positing that perhaps there might be genetic differences between people that account for some of these differences in perception and experience. I'm thinking here of Donald Hoffman. Saw another great interview with him recently where he talked about, again, one of his famous statements is, your neurons don't really exist. So he talked about even being in front of his faculty members, like his co-faculty members, and giving one of his talks, and they're all nodding their head and saying yes. Again, but then he says at the end, I don't think you guys are getting it. What I'm saying is your neurons don't exist. And then they kind of are shaken out of their stupor and say, what do you mean they don't exist? He's like, that's what I'm saying, that what we perceive as reality is just an interface, that that's how it's translated to make us able to navigate the same way that a trash can on a desktop screen allows you to remove information that basically is represented in binary code and voltages and things like that, but you see as letters and characters and an email or something. But one is not the same as the other. One is just a really dumbed down impression of the other that allows you to navigate a space you would have no ability to navigate otherwise. So his point is that even if Gary Nolan is able to track these things in what it looks like brain structures, neurological structures, that again is more like a sign of what's really going underlyingly on energetically. And if the ultimate nature of reality is kind of these energetic configurations, then that ultimately is what this is about. And the way that it presents itself, to use Bernardo's kind of language, is as neurons. So on, again, he talks about when you're flying a plane, you're flying a plane using these dials. 
and looking at these different screens and whatnot. But that's not actual reality. That's not the weather out there. That's just telling you information, translated information about a much more complex actual reality so you can fly the plane. Even when you can't possibly see, for instance, in a, in a blackout situation, you can't see what's out there. You don't know if you're flying upside or downside. So you have to trust your dials and your gauges and your screens. In the same way, that's what we actually navigate with and what we perceive as space-time. Space-time is the dials and gauges and screens of the dashboard of a plane, basically, is what he's saying. But it's interesting because beyond Gary Nolan, you've also got people like Dean Radin that have done studies on this around psychic capacity. And I've mentioned this before, I think, in one of our older episodes where he found that, first of all, I think this is encouraging to most people, he found that almost everyone does have psychic capacity, actually, that it's actually the, the exception to the rule that people don't. What was even more interesting was that when he actually studied those who don't, they tended to come from parts of the world where there are witch hunts or persecution of people who had any kind of extra normal sensory capability. Basically, that was seen as a sign of the devil, working with the devil, those kind of things. Those people were put to death, executed. You basically have eradication, a part of the genetic line of humanity. And as a result, there are people who have come from those places that no longer have that capacity. And it's also interesting because he talks about actually, they seem to be the ones that have the mutation. The non-psychic capacity is the mutation, not the norm, which again speaks to what Joe McMonagall has talked about before, where he thinks actually remote viewing, remote sensing, extra sensory perception in general was an early evolutionary capacity we had to deal with a very complex and difficult series of environments that we were in before we had the social safety net we have today. So again, regardless of what the ultimate nature is, whether or not brain structures really point to something deeper around energetic configurations, it's very, very interesting. And one of the things I talked about with a friend recently was, imagine we get to a point where we're actually able to isolate what those genetic differences look like. And then you've got something like what happened, what, a couple of years ago where we're 23 and me had a hack and information about people's genetics was leaked out. So imagine you have kind of an X-Men kind of scenario now where people are able to identify either people who have these capacities and they are actually seen as demonic because again, slotting into an old model or somebody that we can't trust because they see things I don't. And then we get into a situation where you've got different human groups competing against each other, potentially even warring with each other over these differences. Yeah, it can get hairy pretty quickly. Uh, we've blunted all the sharp objects in our world so that we don't get hurt. I think that's kind of a part of what you're getting at there is that we've, we may have had these capacities, capabilities, but we've, you know, kind of put so many crutches in, in, in our, in our environment that we no longer need them. And so they've, they've atrophied as a result. Uh, but I'm also really wary of some of this stuff because it triggers me you know, to be honest it triggers me because it's another natural human tendency with this kind of conversation and way of thinking is that there are plenty of people they're going to tell themselves well you know how do i get those capabilities you know how do, do i level up so that i can have experienced xyz and it becomes this very uh, competitive drive that we often have to you know, to be better, stronger, whatever it is, or get closer to the truth. And we all 
can point to many examples in human history where that desire has been abused, right? Where people who have, who have, you know, they're charismatic, they're leaders, they've exploited their charisma and taken advantage of people, asking them to do X, Y, Z, follow these protocols so that you also can see whatever it is I'm seeing. And then they end up, you know, bilking them for their life savings or, or whatever. So, you know, I'm wary of that as well. Uh, it, it goes to show you that this is an incredibly complex matter that we can't take our traditional ways of thinking and apply them to this to solve it. Because, it, you know, what everything I've just explained there is not even the way that this actually works. It's not even the way to, to, to think about it. It's the way that we, you know, our, our instinctual way to think about it. We've all been programmed to think about what you describe in these ways that I explained. But it, that's not what's really taking place. It's not the point of what's taking place. So to to give us a new way of thinking about it, a new way of pro- approaching reality that isn't this kind of uh, one-upsmanship, or uh, I can out de- be I can be more out devoted than you can, so that I can have an experience and 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 you know therefore get closer to truth or God or reality. Insert your you know poison there. That that's not the point. So I don't know if you could speak to that to some degree, because I feel like that's kind of going to be part of this and this unhealthy fixation with being right, being correct, being aligned with ultimate correctness. Um, it's not that that isn't good, but how do we make that a healthy thing and not a a, a destructive thing? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, and I think. This is where we can begin to bridge into a couple of things. One is the the spiritual dynamic behind all of this and what that might involve in terms of the underlying metaphysical substructure to what we perceive as space-time and the stage upon which consciousness evolves, as I would say, but also about, again, what it's like to grok all of this as an experiencer versus a non-experiencer. And again, even with an experiencer, that's a wide range of different kinds of experience that people are referring to. But one thing I wanted to bring up was how, speaking of the spiritual part, you and I, before we went on the air, we're talking about how the extra-tempestrial model, this notion that these various kinds, short grays, tall grays, reptilians, Nordics, ones that look almost completely like modern humans are actually all different variations on the human genome, maybe with the splicing together with other kinds of species from planet Earth. You can certainly make that argument. And what some people have asked me is, well, what about the spiritual dynamic though? Like, because clearly in your view, Darren, there's a metaphysical substructure to all of this and that the meaning of existence is about the evolution of consciousness. That's the ultimate purpose. So how does that play into this just being us, but a future version of us that's more technologically capable, that's able to manipulate space-time and whatnot? I think it's a fair point. And I was having a conversation with my friend, Sean Esborn Hargens recently, and he made the point that he likes the extra-tempestrial model, but he also acknowledges that it has certain Darwinian assumptions and it has certain physicalist assumptions. So that was a good point. And it made me realize that on the one hand, I'm championing idealism, but at the same time, shining a bright light on this one particular model or hypothesis that has some assumptions that actually differ from that kind of perspective. And that's a good point. And again, as I always like to say to people, these things are not mutually exclusive. 
I don't think we fully understand time clearly. Time is not what we perceive it as. Even Einstein would say that kind of thing, persistent illusion or delusion. But nevertheless, there might be something like that that is going on. So we really are having beings that are future versions of ourselves. That may be the case, even though I think that's, again, a partial understanding. But I think where I lean towards is that there's clear evidence for there being this kind of ancient cosmic seeding program. Now, if someone were to say to me, can you please cite your sources? What evidence are you pointing to there? This again becomes a huge question. That will become a huge question next year. Which bodies of data do you look towards and do you consider trustworthy when you try to make sense of what's going on? People are going to completely disagree about that. And people are going to conveniently disagree because I don't like that hypothesis, so I'm going to reject that data. And we won't really have any precedence to know whether or not that's the right thing to do or not. But so from my point of view, channeling material is some of the most valuable information we have. Now, I say that while also saying not every channeling experience is created equal. Some people completely get in the way of the channeling. Some people completely make it up. Some people are delusional. But on the other hand, there's material like the raw material, the material that's come forward from the Dolores Cannon corpus that I think really speaks to something fundamentally true. And that actually this is a kind of technology in plain sight that from my point of view, it's amazing that the scientific community has not studied this more. In fact, I was talking to a close friend about that this week. If nothing else, study it, see what's there. Don't just reject it and ridicule it because it doesn't fit with the consensus view. Again, that's what physicalism does. And that's why so much of this entire matter has been rejected for so long. And the secret keepers have gotten away with that for so long because most people don't want to believe it or they just believe the scoff and never look into it. So that's something that's interesting to think about too. Right. I mean, I think you you really hit it for me when you talked about what form of evidence would even exist to convince us that it were true. So if it's not like there's some you know, library of the Galactic Federation, we can, you know, go to pull off the volume that says, you know, Earth human seeding program and open it up. I mean, I'm, I'm, this sounds funny, but, but you know, just imagine this taking place and such a volume exists, such a library exists, and they, they put it out in front of everybody. It goes into Wikipedia, whatever. The world has access to this information. We, we live in an age where we have enough knowledge about the manipulation of information that we're going to look at that with a skeptical eye. We're going to say, oh, I mean, you can hear all the excuses. Oh, uh, okay, I'll, I'll concede this is an advanced uh, species. They clearly can do things we can't do, whatever. But how do I know that what this, what's in this volume is actually what took place? I'm not so sure, right? And so... To me, this really kind of unlocks, in some ways, the 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 root of the core of the of the of the entire enterprise, because we live in a in a meaning making model rather than an evidentiary based model. Like that, it's it's just a, a totally different way of thinking about things. It's like how in a dream, meaning is derived from experiences of the dream and interpretations of the experiences in the, in the dream not from the hard facts of what happened in the dream. But we live in a world where we think hard facts dictate meaning and information. So it's it's a very, it's, it's backward basically. And so when you look at it from that perspective, that that meaning and information, meaning making is, is the core fabric, then the entire enterprise, going back to what you talked about earlier, 
the entire enterprise of living is about us. You know, it, it's all designed for us. And everything that, that is experienced within it, everything that, that is happening within it is designed for us so that we derive meaning from it. And it, it's just a, a wholly different way of looking at it. And it upends the way that we're taught to think about reality. Indeed. You know, thinking about this matter of some people experience something and some people don't, I was also thinking about this just as you were talking there in terms of experience that people have in Zen Buddhism, for instance, or different kinds of Buddhism, where you have an awakening experience. Some people have an awakening experience they call enlightenment. Some people don't. So you, again, have two sides of the fence there. And it's the kind of thing that a Zen master will ask questions of a student to try to determine if they really have achieved enlightenment. And the nature of their answers will tell them whether or not they have or not. And the thing is, until you've experienced it, you actually will not know what the right answer is. That's the key. So you've actually even had situations. This is one famous case where this leader of a Zen monastery is trying to pick a successor. And there's this one student, he's the star student, he always gets all the answers right, and he's he's a really great meditator, and he's a leader of men kind of thing. But then this question is asked about the nature of reality. And it's kind of like a Zen koan, right? It's meant to have an unconventional answer in some ways. And so this one person gives this answer, and all the other Zen guys at the monastery say, ah, such a great answer. There he goes again, star student, right? And this one guy who was brought in and he basically sweeps the floors and does the dishes and those kinds of things, he saw that these monks, he wasn't even a monk, these monks had actually put together these answers. And so he, he just sort of scribbled on the spot his own view. And the Zen teacher found that, scrambled to find out who was the one that wrote that, found it was this guy who was like the dishwasher, sweeping the floors kind of guy. But he knew that he had the direct insight. He had, had experienced enlightenment in a way that the others had it, including the star student. And again, the key is that the star student and all the other Zen monks couldn't have known because until you get that, that direct gnosis experience, you don't know the right answer. And so that's key when we think about this. So we have other times in history I'm speaking to here where there are kinds of experience that are unique and you kind of have this dividing line between those who've achieved that and those who haven't. Even when I talk about non-duality, a lot of people can talk about that as a concept, actually get becoming so central to you that you it's your lived experience, your default experience, rather than something you have to conceptually try to consider is a very, very different matter entirely. But speaking of this spiritual aspect, here's the thing. Like I said earlier, wrapped up with people being taken from their homes, going through the ontological shock of seeing beings that shouldn't exist, they've been told can't possibly exist, being taken on board a craft after, after being levitated out to some sort of scout craft, they're taken up into a larger craft, their ova or their sperm are taken, they are sometimes later on introduced to hybrid children. That initially is shocking, traumatizing, of course. Sometimes they feel a revulsion when they see these children because they look something like a cross between a human being and a gray alien sometimes, sometimes something else entirely. When they see these little babies, these fetuses growing in these sort of tanks like you'd see in an aquarium, that's disconcerting when you see row after row after row after row of these kinds of things. But then they also find out that, wait a second, I have memories of being a three-year-old and a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. 
and this large mantid being that's wearing a cape actually teaching me about quantum equations and actually teaching me about the nature of the universe and the interconnectivity of everything and how even this reproduction program, this hybridization program is for some greater good. And then on top of that, you begin to have memories. Wait a second. I knew these people, these beings before I ever came here. Wait a second. I actually was one of them in a previous incarnation. And I agreed to come here because I knew the earth was going through this tumultuous period that we spoke to earlier, this unique period in human history, unlike any other. And because it's so consequential, I chose to come here in what the raw material refers to as a wanderer to try to help raise the vibration collectively so that this transition into a 4D earth, what on earth does that mean, could take place. This is what's in play here in terms of the actual nature of the underlying metaphysical infrastructure that we're talking about here. So when you think about that in light of disclosure and what's going to come out of the legislative branch or the executive branch, what do you think about? Oh boy. <laughs> it's like, uh, I took the show I grew up with, uh, that, was, that was the line he would always say, quantum leap, he'd get to the new uh, reality that he would quantum leap into. And the first thing he would say at every beginning of the episode was, oh boy. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. And we're talking about the spiritual aspect of it all, right? I, I, to me, you know, that, as you know, that is a bigger focus of mine than almost anything else. Because we could talk about what kind of craft there are. We could talk about what kind of beings there are. We could talk about all this stuff. But if it doesn't actually affect how you live and how you treat others, how you treat yourself, how you look at your place within the cosmos, your 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 own journey, then what good is it all, right? What what good is any of that stuff? It it's it's it means nothing. You know, and we talked, you talked about the enlightened, uh, you know, sort of janitor and sweeper. What is he going to do after reaching enlightenment? He's going to sweep the floors and, and, and clean the, you know, the temple or whatever it is. He's going to continue doing those things. And, you know, you can, you, this is what kind of occurred to me today is that, that you can approach literally every experience of your life as an opportunity for insight. No matter how small, no matter how big, you can look at that experience and 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 find meaning that leads to your growth. You know, I was chopping wood last week and I'm just sitting there chopping away at this log and I'm thinking about, you know, aspects of reality just as I'm whacking away at this thing. You know, that that's an opportunity. And for those of you that that don't think about those things, it doesn't matter. You know, like you know, you've got your own life to live. We all, we've all got our own lives to live here. And if you feel, you know, energetically drawn or spiritually connected to this, then then that that's what you need to pay attention to. You know, that's the thread you need to pull on. And in some ways, perhaps, the fantastical nature of all of this stuff is trying to get our attention it's trying to it's damnedest to get our attention to pull on this thread and we need to pull on it as a society so that we can get our heads straight because that's what it's all about you know it's not all about mastering you know this technology so we can have free energy or defeating aging or defeating cancer or having unlimited food or traveling through the solar system like 
okay, cool. But that, that's not ultimately what it's about. So that, that's how I approach this. And, uh, you know, my focus is always on sort of the, the, the deeper personal, it ultimately cosmic aspect of reality that is the most important in my book. Indeed. Agreed. And by the way, you mentioned chopping wood. That's ironic in terms of what you talked about, what you do after enlightenment, because there's this famous Zen saying that says, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. There you go. Absolutely, that's the case. And I think that's actually even a way that we can sort of finish off here in terms of this experiencer versus non-experiencer kind of mentality or way of being in the world is that ultimately it's less important what you've experienced perhaps And it's more about what perspective do you want to orient your life around? So for instance, whether or not you've had the experience of being on board a craft and the eight foot tall mantid being in a cape is teaching you about the interconnectivity of everything. Do you need to have that experience to believe that to be the case? Again, what's interesting is many of the things these others are telling us, the most ascended one of them, again, I'm not trying to exclude or claim there's never any negative experiences. I think of course there are. Again, when you have a spectrum of consciousness, you're going to have that. You're going to have some beings that are as selfishly motivated as many human beings and perhaps just more technologically capable, and they're going to act like we do in many ways. But the most ascendant of these ones talk about the interconnectivity of everything and everyone and how we are expressions of source consciousness, that there's this honoring, almost like even kind of a sacred space within a spacecraft. You mentioned earlier a temple. People find that on a spacecraft, with all this hyper-technology, there's a central area that's basically a temple where people basically go to worship this source, which is the ground of all being, of which we've all arisen from. Us, them, whether we were engineered along the way or not. Again, all fractal impressions of source consciousness. So in that sense, we think about not just these ascendant others giving this message, but again, ancient Vedantic and Buddhist traditions speak to the very same thing, that Reality, basically, as we perceive it, space-time itself, is a stage on which consciousness has the opportunity to evolve. So again, the question is not whether or not you've had the experience or not, because I think for those with that perspective, looking for the spiritual meaning behind everything, the purpose of why we're here, I think you can find evidence for that. You can have experience around that, whether it involves these particular kinds of experiences or not. And I think maybe that's what will help us rally together as a species, you would hope, as we move forward and grapple with so many of these revelations. Yeah, I mean, to put it a little bit differently, the only thing that is required is experienced itself. And that is something that we all share. We can put different quantities on it or different qualities to experience, but the fact that we experience it all should be the gateway. That's all we need. so I think we're aligned on that 100%. Do I think the world is ready for that? Do I think that we're able to unroll whatever this is and folks make sense of that? I No, I, quite frankly, we're not. And um, we're going to need some help. Is what I'll, I'll, I'll say about that. I hope we get it. Well, that's interesting you bring that up because, again, one thing I was saying to you before I went on the air tonight was that when people say, why aren't these others showing up? Why aren't they making their presence known? I said to you, they are. They're just doing it mostly in a grassroots way. Again, the most ascendant of these, they're inspiring people. They're taking people's 
already innate desire to reach for these higher forms of consciousness, these higher stages of consciousness, the sense of interconnectivity, people who are acting on that impression, that expectation about the way things really are, they're being met and inspired along the way. And some people that means are having these really mind-blowing experiences and other people just wake up from a dream feeling a bit more connected to everything than they were before and that will orient the way they choose to live their lives that day. So I would say there are others helping us. And again, this completely plays into religious history. It's all part of the picture here. And we'll continue to try to parse it out as we continue on liminal frames moving forward. That's right. Let's continue paying attention and having this conversation. But thank you all for joining us. Looking forward to the next conversation in the future. May the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.